Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, suicide, and the sexual abuse of minors that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. When Elizabeth Griffin Hall pulled into the driveway, the clock on her dashboard read 11.57 a.m. She'd hardly come to a stop before seven-year-old Charlie and five-year-old Brayden barreled out of the back seat and rushed up the front steps. They were so thrilled to see their father. Elizabeth hoped it would last, but she'd been in social work long enough to know that excitement had a way of turning into resentment. Strained father-son relationships rarely had happy endings. She opened the car door and rose from the driver's seat, her back aching as she straightened up. She walked slowly towards the porch, but before she got up the steps, Josh Powell flung the door open. The boys immediately dashed through his legs into the house. Josh gave Elizabeth a tight-lipped nod before slamming the door in her face. Elizabeth tried the knob, locked. Through the door, she heard Josh tell his children he had a surprise for them. She pounded on the door and rang the bell frantically. She was supposed to supervise Josh's visits with the boys. He couldn't be allowed to be alone with them. As she made her way back to her car to call her supervisor, she heard one of the kids cry out. It wasn't the sound of a boy who was delighted to see his father. It was a scream of terror. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed Susan Powell's fraught relationship with her husband, Josh. After meeting through their local Church of Latter-day Saints in 2000, Josh and Susan married quickly. Despite Susan's efforts to work on their relationship, Josh quickly became controlling and abusive. After Susan made it clear that she would seek a divorce, she disappeared without a trace from their Utah home. This week, we'll talk about the police investigation into Susan's disappearance. Just as authorities were closing in on the truth, a tragic crime destroyed the Powell family forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Around 2 a.m. on December 7, 2009, a neighbor heard 28-year-old Susan Powell and her husband, 33-year-old Josh, loudly arguing. When the yelling finally stopped, Josh's blue Chrysler minivan zoomed out of the neighborhood. When Josh and Susan both failed to show up to work or drop their two young children at daycare the next morning, the entire Powell family was reported missing. With permission from Josh's sister, Jennifer, officers from the West Valley City, Utah Police Department broke into the Powell's home. In the master bedroom, they found Susan's purse, wallet, and keys untouched. It seems she either left her home in a rush or that she was forced out. In the living room, two box fans hummed, drying a damp couch. The upholstery had been cleaned just hours before police arrived. On a patch of tile behind the couch, officers found tiny drops of blood. The situation puzzled police and terrified friends and family who frantically called Susan and Josh's cell phones. After hours of unanswered calls, Susan's friend Giovanna finally got a hold of Josh at three o'clock in the afternoon. He answered the phone nonchalantly, apparently as surprised as anybody that Susan hadn't shown up for work that day. Giovanna told him he needed to come home as soon as possible and talk to the authorities, but Josh wasn't in a hurry. Without giving any explanation as to why, after the call, he drove further away from his home with Charlie and Brayden dozing in the back seat. He then called Susan's cell phone and left a voicemail, saying he had been confused about what day it was, thinking it was Sunday instead of Monday. He said he was on his way to pick her up from work. A short while later, he left another message telling Susan he was waiting for her outside. Of course, Susan never came out to the parking lot. Having spoken to Giovanna and his sister Jennifer by this point, Josh should have known she wouldn't. He pretended to be more ignorant than he actually was. Josh didn't return home until 5 or 6 p.m., the fact that it took him so long to arrive made police highly suspicious. As soon as a blue Chrysler minivan pulled up, an officer approached the driver's side window and asked Josh where he'd been. 
Josh said he hadn't been home since the night before. He claimed he'd left after midnight to take his son's camping without Susan. The investigator peeked into the car and saw Charlie and Brayden, two very tired looking kids, strapped in car seats in the back. The camping trip story seemed obviously absurd. Utah was covered in snow. The previous night had been below freezing. It made no sense for a father to take small children out in 10 degree weather in the middle of the night. When the officer searched Josh's car, however, it was packed with camping supplies. The story was bizarre, but even if it was true, it didn't mean Josh wasn't involved in his wife's disappearance. With this in mind, officers continued looking through Josh's vehicle. He had clearly taken time to prepare answers to questions about his camping trip. To catch him in a potential lie, detectives needed to catch him off guard. Before I continue with Josh's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2009 study published in the journal Law and Human Behavior, researchers found that asking surprising questions can help differentiate a liar from a truth teller. This may be because liars tend to carefully plan their stories and have more difficulty improvising. While the 2009 study focused on college students, its findings were useful for those who study criminal behavior during interrogations. Josh's inconsistent answers fit the pattern of a liar who felt caught off guard. Hidden among the camping supplies in Josh's car, investigators found Susan's cell phone with the SIM card removed. Exactly what they needed. Josh acted surprised that the officers discovered the device and couldn't adequately explain why it was in his car since his wife reportedly stayed home the night before. When police asked Josh where his wife might be, he said he didn't know, but later suggested that she ran off with another man. To anybody who knew Susan, the idea that she had a secret lover was ridiculous. Susan had certainly been unhappy with her marriage, but she was, at her core, a family-oriented Mormon woman. If she went anywhere voluntarily, it wouldn't have been with another man and she never would have left her children behind. Authorities, however, were still getting an idea of who Susan Powell was. They didn't yet realize how Josh was twisting the story. After interviewing Josh briefly that evening, the police told him he had to come in the next day for a proper interview. Unfortunately, that also gave Josh an opportunity to cover his tracks. The next morning, his sister Jennifer, walked in on him doing just that. Jennifer parked her car and walked quickly up her brother's front porch steps. She couldn't begin to imagine what Josh was going through. If her husband suddenly disappeared, she'd be devastated. She just hoped she could give Josh some comfort and reassure him that the police would find Susan soon. As she walked through the front door, Jennifer expected to find Josh zoned out on the couch or frantically calling people who might have information about his wife. Instead, she found him frantically vacuuming the living room carpet. Piles of freshly cleaned but not yet folded clothes were stacked in the laundry room. The entire house smelled like bleach. Josh was short with Jennifer, 
He claimed he didn't have time to talk. He had to get all the cleaning done before he talked to the authorities. Jennifer didn't want to think badly of her brother, but she couldn't help remembering the damp couch from the previous morning. At first, she explained it away, thinking that Charlie and Brayden had probably spilled something on the upholstery. But now that she saw Josh scrubbing down his entire home, she feared the worst. By the time Josh finished cleaning and drove to the station, he was four hours late for his scheduled interview. According to one news report, the statements he made during his interrogation were evasive, disjointed, and sometimes contradictory. Josh now told West Valley City Police that Susan was suicidal. They'd been married for almost a decade, yet Josh couldn't name a single one of Susan's friends or tell officers whether or not someone might want to hurt her. He acted like he didn't know a thing about his own wife. Detectives were troubled by Josh's lack of concern. Normally, when a person's significant other goes missing, they are in frequent contact with law enforcement and actively participate in the search and investigation. Josh, on the other hand, avoided police whenever possible and seemed to be withholding potentially vital information. Right off the bat, he became a prime suspect. They asked him to wait in the lobby while they searched his car a second time. Authorities assured Josh the search wouldn't take long, but instead of waiting, Josh left the station and picked up a rental car. With the new car, Josh drove over 800 miles. With a 400-mile radius for a round trip, Josh could have gone almost anywhere in Utah and into any neighboring state. Suspiciously, Josh purchased a new cell phone during this two-day trip. When he was asked to surrender it to police, they found that the SIM card was missing. And on December 8th and 9th, while Josh was driving hundreds of miles, his father Steve, who lived in Washington State, took two sick days from work. Although Steve had a history of harassing women, he and his son had maintained a close relationship throughout Josh's marriage. They would often speak on the phone for hours. Had they met up to talk in person shortly after the crime? Josh's complicated relationship with Steve was a promising lead. Up next, officers interrogate Steve Powell and find more than they bargained for. Listeners, here's a show you do not want to miss. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales and some don't. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After 28-year-old Susan Powell went missing in the early morning of December 7, 2009, Her husband, 33-year-old Josh, suggested that she had either died by suicide or had left him for another man. Few people bought his story. Josh's unlikely alibi and clearly evasive behavior around police quickly made him a prime suspect. Authorities brought him to the station for an interrogation, but while they were searching his car on December 8th, Josh rented a vehicle and drove over 800 miles. Investigators would later suspect that Josh met up with his father, Steve, at some point during those two days. There were several theories about where Josh went during the 48 hours that he had the rental car. It was possible that if Susan was dead, Josh had gone to move her body. Perhaps he met up with his father to confide the truth of what happened on December 7th. Or maybe they never saw each other at all. It was clear that Josh's behavior was suspicious, but all the evidence authorities had thus far, Susan's cell phone, the damp couch, the blood spatter, and the rented vehicle was circumstantial. Nothing definitively linked Josh to a crime. Nothing showed for certain that a crime had been committed at all. After December 8th, Josh shunned his family, friends, and police. For a man who usually had to be the center of attention, he was suddenly eerily quiet. Nobody he knew ever heard from him and he never reached out to law enforcement to ask for updates about the investigation. In the meantime, officers interviewed Susan's family and friends who painted a much different picture of her marriage than Josh had. According to them, Susan was a devoted Mormon and a doting mother. The idea she left her children behind to be with someone else was unthinkable. Close friends showed police emails in which Susan confided the turmoil in her relationship and explicitly stated that she feared her husband. One friend pointed detectives to Susan's safe deposit box where a year and a half before she disappeared, she'd hidden a secret will. In the document, Susan wrote that she did not trust her husband and requested that upon her death, her parents be given custody of her kids. Near the end, Susan wrote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Officers also spoke to an acquaintance who talked to Josh at a Christmas party in 2008. According to the man, Josh made unsettling comments about how he would get away with the perfect murder by hiding the body in one of the approximately 20,000 abandoned mine shafts across Utah. Josh said no one would ever think to search there. Of course, police now knew exactly where they needed to look if Susan had indeed been murdered by her husband. The problem was, Searching that many mine shafts wasn't just dangerous, it was practically impossible. 
The newest round of interviews also shed light on Steve Powell's disturbing behavior towards Susan. Josh's father had stalked and harassed his daughter-in-law, so it was possible that he might have had a hand in her disappearance. On December 17th, 10 days after Susan was reported missing, West Valley City Police questioned Steve. In his interviews, Steve openly admitted his infatuation with Susan, but tried to make the imagined romance seem consensual. Although Susan turned Steve down and moved nearly 900 miles just to get away from him, he somehow believed that the two of them shared a mutual affection. His delusion was unsettling, but he had an alibi for December 7th. He spent the day at home with three of his children. Besides Josh, Steve had one other child who didn't live with him, Jennifer. She was the one who previously gave police the okay to search Josh and Susan's home. Now she sat for an interview and painted a picture of a twisted and damaging family situation in Steve Powell's home. Jennifer claimed that her father had a serious pornography problem and that strange sexual behaviors, including his voyeurism, were normalized in his home. When she was a child, Steve left pornographic images pulled up on his computer and magazines such as Playboy laying out where she or her four siblings could easily stumble upon them. This inadvertent exposure to pornography at such a young age traumatized Jennifer and likely did the same to her siblings. According to researchers Antonia Quadara and Alisar Elmur from the Australian Institute of Family Studies, pornography, while not inherently problematic, can have far-reaching effects on young people. According to Dr. Quadara and Dr. Elmur, Male adolescents who view pornography frequently are more likely to view women as sex objects, hold sexist attitudes, and strengthen attitudes supportive of sexual violence and violence against women. This is significant in places like the United States, where approximately one in six women will experience rape or sexual violence. Pornography can encourage the idea that male sexual aggression is acceptable or desirable. Misogynistic attitudes were pervasive in Steve's house. He cheated on and berated his wife, who eventually left him. He kept images of pinup models on his bedroom walls. Josh was exposed to pornography at a young age, and evidence would later reveal that he, like his father, regularly viewed pornography as an adult. With all this in mind, it's easy to see where Josh's penchant for controlling and berating Susan was nurtured. Jennifer told police that she had no doubt that her brother was capable of hurting or even killing Susan. Officers believed her. All of the evidence they had pointed to a murder perpetrated by Josh, though Steve may have somehow been involved too. Still, as unlikely as it seemed, it was also possible that Susan had left of her own volition. Without any concrete evidence that a crime had occurred, authorities were stuck. Since detectives didn't have enough probable cause to obtain a search warrant for the Powell's home, Josh had even more time to cover up potential evidence. Though he remained the prime suspect, Josh was a completely free man. 
When he decided to take his children and move in with his father in January 2010, just a month after Susan disappeared, officers couldn't do anything to stop him. To police, the move made it clear that Josh knew Susan wasn't ever coming home. Susan's parents, Charles and Judy, tried to hold on to hope that their daughter would be found. But Josh's move infuriated them. They couldn't sit idly by while he took their grandchildren to live with Steve. Following the instructions Susan put in her will, Charles and Judy attempted to get custody of Charlie and Brayden. Without any concrete evidence that Josh was an unfit father, however, there was next to nothing Charles and Judy could do to get custody. Charlie and Brayden lived in Steve's house, which was no place for children. Charles and Judy were hurt, but they weren't out of options. Jennifer was dead set on getting justice for her sister-in-law and offered to wear a wire to get Josh to confess on tape. On January 22, 2010, she attended a family dinner at Steve's home while officers listened from a vehicle parked down the street. Jennifer's stomach fluttered as she walked inside her father's home. She thought wearing the wire might make her feel powerful, like a secret agent. But now she just felt vulnerable, worried that Josh and Steve would discover the tiny microphone at any moment. She went through the motions at the awkward family dinner, forcing herself to eat even though her appetite had been zapped by nerves. All she needed was a moment alone with her brother to try to trip him into an accidental confession. When Josh stood and headed to the restroom after dinner, Jennifer seized the opportunity. She waited in the hallway for him to open the door, then cornered him, her heart pounding in her ears. Working hard to keep her voice steady, she asked Josh what he did to his wife. She watched as her brother's face suddenly grew hard. With a cold detachment in his voice, he told Jennifer that he wasn't allowed to talk to anybody about Susan's disappearance. All the time, his face remained impassive, stoic as stone. Jennifer even tried accusing Josh of murder outright, but he was impossible to shake. Her eyes filled with tears. She hardly recognized him anymore. Jennifer ran out of Steve's house in a fury. The police assured her she'd done everything she could, but she nevertheless blamed herself for not getting a confession. It was their one chance, and she'd failed. Although detectives didn't want to admit it to Jennifer at the time, the confession really had been their last real hope. Unless they uncovered a piece of physical evidence linking Josh to Susan's disappearance, they wouldn't be able to get a warrant for his arrest. He could keep living in Washington with Steve and authorities couldn't do anything about it. They continued conducting interviews and searched some of the safer mine shafts in Utah, but months passed with no new leads. In the meantime though, public pressure on Josh increased. He was still the only suspect police publicly named in Susan's disappearance. To news outlets reporting on the case, he was the obvious culprit. In response to this scrutiny, 61-year-old Steve and 35-year-old Josh went on a bizarre media crusade. Their goal seemed to be to redeem Josh by slandering Susan. 
Steve told reporters from ABC News that Susan was flirtatious and that they had shared a mutual attraction. Josh said he believed his wife may have left him for another man because she was a very sexual person. The way they characterized Susan was out of touch with the way every other person she knew described her. Josh also told ABC News that Susan was unstable, citing entries from her journals in which she wrote about normal ups and downs of adult life. He once again suggested that if she didn't leave him, she may have died by suicide. Authorities were interested in Josh's mention of Susan's diaries. If they could access her writings, they might be able to learn more about the true nature of her relationship with Josh. Detectives had a hunch that Josh was storing the journals at Steve's home, meaning they'd need a search warrant to get them. So in August of 2011, officers came up with a plan. If they could get Steve or Josh to admit they had Susan's journals, then they could get a warrant to search Steve's home. To do this, authorities organized a honkin' wave with Charles Cox near Steve's home. On the surface, it looked like an effort to keep up awareness of the search for Susan. In reality, however, it was an operation designed to infuriate Steve and Josh. Police knew the two men wouldn't be able to resist a chance to make themselves the center of attention. When they drove by the honkin' wave on August 20th, 2011, Steve and Josh pulled over to argue with Susan's family. They insisted that Josh was the real victim because media outlets were making him out to be a villain. More importantly, they admitted Susan's journals were at Steve's house. With this admission, West Valley City Police were able to obtain the search warrant. When officers entered the house, however, they found much more than Susan's diaries. Hidden in Steve's bedroom, Investigators discovered a cache of items he'd saved from when Susan and Josh lived with him shortly after they got married, almost a decade prior. In carefully labeled and dated Ziploc baggies, Steve had Susan's used cotton balls, tampon applicators, and even pieces of her hair. He had clothing items that he'd stolen out of her laundry still unwashed. He had a journal of his own in which he documented his growing obsession with his daughter-in-law. Incredibly, this wasn't the worst thing detectives uncovered. They found almost 4,500 photographs of Susan, nearly all of which were clearly taken without her consent or knowledge. To make matters worse, Susan wasn't the only object of Steve's infatuation. He had countless tapes of women and girls from around the neighborhood, some of which showed them walking outside, and some of which were filmed through half-open blinds or curtains. Steve even had videos of children as young as eight years old bathing and changing clothes. On September 22, 2011, officers placed 62-year-old Steve Powell under arrest on charges of felony voyeurism and child pornography. Charlie and Brayden, then six and four years old, were taken into protective care. Almost immediately, Charles and Judy received custody of their grandchildren. They were ecstatic to have the children back in a safe environment. Their excitement turned to dread, however, when the boys began making alarming comments about the night 
their mother disappeared. Up next, Charlie and Brayden start talking. Now, back to the story. Just one month after Susan Powell went missing in the early morning of December 7th, 2009, Josh Powell took their two children to Washington to move in with his father, Steve. Though police suspected Josh murdered his wife, they had no hard evidence. Thus, they couldn't restrict his movements, place him under arrest, or honor Susan's wish that her parents receive custody of her children. Almost two years later, in September 2011, officers arrested Steve on charges of felony voyeurism and child pornography. Following the arrest, Josh and Susan's sons, six-year-old Charlie and four-year-old Brayden, were placed in the care of Susan's parents, Charles and Judy. Both grandparents soon noticed stark changes in the boys' personalities and behavior. They were very attached to their father and clearly distressed to be away from him. However, they were also aggressive and angry. They must have learned their behavior from somewhere, and Charles and Judy had no doubt that Steve and Josh were responsible. No matter how badly Charlie and Brayden wanted to see their father, Susan's parents knew Josh was a bad influence. Their worries only intensified after the boys began talking about the night their mother disappeared. According to Charles and Judy, the boys said that when they left to go camping on December 7th, mommy was in the trunk. This statement was horrifying. Charles and Judy took their grandsons to counseling and tried to tell police about what the boys said, but the veracity of children's statements was, and still is, highly controversial. A series of studies performed since the 1980s found that children were more prone to false memories than adults, and this belief became pervasive in courts and law enforcement. A more recent investigation, however, called this belief into question. In 2012, Cornell University researchers Charles Brainerd and Valerie Reyna gathered new evidence that suggests children may not be any more prone to false memories than adults and can often provide testimony that is quite accurate. Dr. Brainerd and Dr. Reyna wrote that according to current scientific evidence, the principle that children's testimony is necessarily more infected with false memories than adults, and that juries should regard adults' testimony as necessarily more faithful to actual events is untenable. Although Charlie and Brayden's statements could have been based in fact, officers were nevertheless reluctant to take their comments as evidence. But Charles and Judy believed the boys were revisiting repressed memories from December 7th, and that those recollections might be the key to discovering what happened to Susan. In the following months, Josh tried to regain custody of his sons while the boys made even more disturbing confessions. Both of them told their grandparents that they often slept naked at their father's house and sometimes shared a bed with him. Charles and Judy feared Josh was hurting the boys psychologically and perhaps even sexually. Luckily, police found the evidence they needed to deny Josh's custody request. By early 2012, they re-examined items they'd originally seized from Susan and Josh's home in Utah. After they got past the firewalls on Josh's computer, 
they allegedly found over 400 animated images of well-known cartoon characters engaging in sex acts. The images contained depictions of incest and underage characters. If they hadn't been animated, they would have been illegal to possess. According to Dr. James Manley, the psychologist tasked with analyzing Josh, the reviewed images indicate someone's fantasy-laden view of having sex with children. Josh, however, fervently denied allegations of viewing or downloading any such material on his computer. He admitted that he did use pornography, but insisted that he always made sure the actors were of age. Josh likely pointed out that it took nearly two years from the time police seized his computer to when they reportedly found the images. In that time, he suggested, West Valley City Police could have planted evidence against him. In any case, the images made authorities wary of giving Josh custody of his children. The court hired Dr. James Manley to evaluate whether or not Josh was fit to care for Charlie and Brayden. Although Dr. Manley said the children clearly had a strong bond with their father, he nevertheless rejected the custody request. According to him, Josh suffered from an adjustment disorder with traits of narcissism, which left him too focused on his own desires to properly meet Charlie and Brayden's needs. Furthermore, Dr. Manley found the images on Josh's computer highly disturbing. On February 1st, 2012, at Dr. Manley's suggestion, the court ordered Josh to undergo a psychosexual evaluation and a polygraph test to determine whether or not he posed an active threat to his children. It's impossible to know exactly how Josh felt when he was notified of the court-ordered evaluation. It's clear, however, that the test threatened to reveal a part of his mind that would likely cause him to lose custody of his children for good. It was a piece of himself he would do anything to keep secret. Josh must have believed that his time as a free man was waning. He would likely lose his children, and if police asked the right questions, the polygraph might reveal the truth of what happened to Susan. He decided that if he couldn't have his children, nobody could. A few minutes before seven-year-old Charlie and five-year-old Brayden arrived for their supervised visitation on February 5th, 2012, Josh left a voicemail for his family members. He said, I'm calling to say goodbye. I am not able to live without my sons, and I am not able to go on anymore. Just before noon that day, the social worker, a woman named Elizabeth Griffin Hall, arrived at the house Josh was renting. Charlie and Brayden sprinted up the porch too fast for her to keep up. Josh let the boys in, gave Elizabeth a nod, and slammed the door. Through the door, Elizabeth heard a child scream, and she scrambled to call 911. According to Elizabeth, Josh Powell's house lit up just a few minutes later as she sat helplessly waiting for help to arrive. By the time officers finally showed up, they were too late. Josh lit the house on fire, and it burned so fiercely that neighbors said it looked like an explosion. When authorities finally entered the residence, they found Josh, Charlie, and Brayden dead in the same room. A hatchet lay near Josh's body. 
An autopsy would later reveal that all three of the Powells died of carbon monoxide poisoning, but Charlie and Brayden had also sustained wounds to their necks before the fire took over. For everyone, but for Charles and Judy in particular, the tragedy was too awful to put into words. Neither of them could find the will to speak, not to reporters, not to family or friends, not even to each other. A person, Judy thought, could only handle so much. Her mind was a jumble of sorrow for her grandchildren, fury for the harm Josh did to their family, and somehow, the tiniest sliver of hope that her daughter was still alive somewhere. All of these things she felt in equal, overwhelming measure. Her heart couldn't handle it. Her whole body felt numb. Her only solace came from having Charles beside her. She didn't have to explain these things to him. They lived the nightmare together, and together they would have to pull themselves out. They had to find a way to honor their daughter and to make sure their grandchildren didn't die in vain. Everyone in Susan's family was shocked and horrified by Charlie and Braden's deaths. As if Susan's disappearance wasn't awful enough, now Susan's sons, the two people she would have done anything for, were gone. Josh may have avoided the court's ruling, but many reporters saw his suicide as proof that he was guilty of the murders of both his children and his wife. Jennifer, now estranged from her siblings and her father, agreed. For Charles and Judy, the worst part of Charlie and Braden's deaths was the fact that they had warned the court and the police numerous times that Josh was dangerous. They saw his violence coming. They did everything they could to keep the boys away from him. Yet the state of Washington ignored their pleas putting Josh's rights as a father ahead of Charlie and Braden's right to safety. Although Josh, the assumed perpetrator, was dead, police continued to search for Susan or her remains. Throughout the entire investigation, authorities traveled through 11 states and searched more than 400 mines. Still, no conclusive evidence was recovered. In May 2013, officers ended the active phase of their search. Years passed, with no new leads. Steve Powell was released from prison on parole in 2017. Many people hoped that as he neared the end of his life, he would reveal any knowledge he had about where Susan might be. Unfortunately, Steve died at the age of 68 of a heart attack in 2018. The only person left who might have been able to provide closure on the case was gone. By January 2019, Charles and Judy had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the state of Washington, and it was allowed to proceed. In July 2020, a jury ruled that Washington state officials were partially liable for the deaths of seven-year-old Charlie and five-year-old Brayden. Charles and Judy Cox were awarded more than $98 million. In a statement to a local Utah newspaper, Charles said, "'Nothing can bring back the boys, but this is the end of a nightmare and it's gratifying to hear a jury tell the state they were wrong and to award a verdict that will force them to change and make sure this doesn't happen to other children in the future. Charles and Judy established a foundation in Susan, Charlie, and Brayden's honor that provides support for families with missing loved ones and victims of domestic violence. 
they continue to hold out hope that their daughter will one day be found. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.